Exodus chapter 20, 25, verses 23 through 30. It's actually called, really, literally, it's called the table of the bread of the presence. The table of the bread of the presence. You may have heard it referred to most often probably as the table of the showbread. The table of the showbread. As a matter of fact, the heading in your Bible might very well say something similar to that. But the title of this message is not without blood. The table of the bread of the presence. Let's read how our Lord describes it here. It says uh, in his instructions to Moses, You shall also make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold all around. You shall also make for it a frame of, hand, of a handbreadth all around. And you shall make a gold molding for the frame all around. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and put the rings on the four corners that are at its four legs. The rings shall be close to the frame as the holders for the poles to bear the table. And you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold that the table may be carried with them. You shall make its dishes, its pans, its pitchers, and its bowls for pouring. You shall make them of pure gold, and you shall set the showbread on the table before me always. Look at that. And you shall set the showbread on the table before me always. Okay, thank you for standing. You may be seated, please. Thank you so much. We've been going through the pieces of the furniture, as you know. The first place, by way of review that we went, was the bronze altar. The bronze altar is in the courtyard. It's a picture of the cross of Christ. And after we went beyond the bronze altar, then we went into uh, the next article, which is the bronze laver. That's where the washing took place. And we talked about the fact that the bronze altar is a picture of Calvary. That's where we're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And once having been redeemed, there's a need for daily washing in the life of a believer. The redemption is for relationship. Uh, I mean, fellow, uh, relationship. But the need to wash at the bronze laver is for fellowship. So we stop at the bronze laver daily, and we talked about in the Word of God that when the Word of God talks about water as it's used for washing, what does that refer to? Does anybody remember? When it talks about water as used for washing, what does it refer to? The Word of God. So we bathe with the Word of God. There's a constant need in our lives for confession of sin. 1 John 1.9 is the place we go here. If we confess uh, our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So whatever the Lord reveals to us that we're ready for and convicts us, He'll cleanse us of that if we'll confess it to Him. And then He'll also cleanse us for everything else that is in our lives He's not ready to show us because we knew we couldn't take it. And so, um, so we go to the the bronze labor for washing, and now we're going to go into the tabernacle itself. And we remember we talked about the fact that the first part of the tabernacle, as you look up on the example there where the, where the, uh, the tent is uncovered for us so we can see inside there, the first part of the tabernacle is called the holy place. And then the next part of the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant is is called the most holy place. And the next part of the furniture that we're going to encounter, once there's a visit to the bronze altar, once there's a washing at the bronze laver, 
there's there's the there's the the prospect for fellowship inside the holy place, communion with God, an intimate place of fellowship with the Lord. And so once we move move into the holy place, the next part of the furniture that we come to would be the table of the bread of the presence, the showbread. Now, if you look on the picture there, it's on the north side of the uh, of the most holy place. You remember we're coming in from the east here because it always faced the the gate to the tabernacle always faced the east. So on the north side where the arrow is pointing here is where the table uh, of the bread of the presence is. There's several things we're going to look at. And this is just beautiful as setting the stage for the Lord's Supper. We're going to look at the living message of the table. We're going to look at the loaves on the table. We're going to look at the living, uh, the linings around the table. We're going to look at the layers of cover over the table, and we're going to look at the location of the table. Let's look at the living message of the table. This is some of what was shared yesterday in the women's time together, our ladies' time together, about hospitality. And they focused yesterday in on the ministry of hospitality and what the Bible has to say about treating people with hospitality, first our own families and then the family of God, and then, of course, uh, non-believers. If we want to look at the Scriptures and look at the whole of the Word of God, the greatest host in the Bible is God Himself. And the greatest practitioner of hospitality is God Himself. You know, the God refers to a table. You know you know what? We, as Christians, last week we had an opportunity here to come in here together and share during our worship time, our music worship, our giving worship, our word worship, our fellowship worship. We made a beeline over here to the uh, lunchroom and we had uh, fellowship together with a meal, some wonderful food, by the way, praise the Lord, hallelujah, you know, and uh, that's the one thing about it, when you bring a covered dish, nobody brings what they're not good at, amen, Chad, they bring the thing that they're best at, hallelujah, so you get the best of the best when you go in there, and so our, our fellowship always and almost always invariably is going to wind up at a table somewhere, you know, we're going to wind up at a table somehow, you come over to somebody's house, most of the time, the fellowship around a house is around the table. It's one of the sweetest times you can have as a family, and certainly one of the sweetest times you can have when you invite guests. Well, this picks up from the Lord. The Lord sets a table. What does it say in Psalm 23? Thou preparest, what? A table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You know what it says? You know what? You're in the presence of enemies, and your communion with God, you can have sweet communion in spite of being in the presence of your enemies. Amen. And listen, you know what? No matter what you face on Monday morning, if you've been fellowshipping with God all week and God puts you in front of uh, 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 your enemies, you can feast. You need not famine. And so the Lord says, I put you, I set a table in the presence of your enemy. And then yesterday at the women's gathering, this example was used, but it's one of the greatest in all the Bible. If you go look at 2 Samuel chapter 9, let's go over and look at this. 2 Samuel chapter 9. Take a right hand turn, if you will. 2 Samuel chapter 9, and you remember the story. The story is that of Mephibosheth. I'll say that wrong, but I got that right, I think, that time. David, the second king of Israel. You remember they demanded to have a king, and God said, okay, I was going to be your king, but since you want a king like the nations around you, I'll raise one up. And so he raised up Saul. Well, that wound up being a real mess. And you remember the story, and Saul tried to have David killed, and David was, David was the next heir to the throne. Now we have David who is taken over. He's sitting on the throne. And this is what David says in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. David said, Is there 
steal anyone who is left in the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now, who was Jonathan, you remember? Jonathan was Saul's son. He and David have a very close, special relationship with one another. And here's the picture of this new king. He's brought in a new administration. He's the guy now. Saul's dead. And he says, let me tell you this. Let me ask you a question. Throughout the, 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 the throne and the palace, I want to ask you a question. Is Do you guys know of any heir of Saul that I can somehow or another search out and find and show favor to, that I can be kind to for Jonathan's sake? Because Jonathan was my brother. And a servant speaks up who used to serve Saul and said, you know what, there is one. It's a little boy. Well, he's, he's grown now. But his name is Mephibosheth. And when he was five years old, they were trying to escape from a battle, and in the, uh, in the escape, he was dropped, or he tripped and fell, and he became lame for the rest of his life in both of his feet. And David said, well, go find him. And so they go find him, and you find Mephibosheth now, and they inform him, you know what, the king wants to see you. Well, I'll assure you, for him, that wasn't any kind of, that wasn't a, a good thought. That sent him trembling in his, in his, in his, uh, in his, uh, in his, his, his house because here's what happened. Normally, it was the practice of pagan kings. One of the first things a pagan king would do when he took over was he would make sure that he had every one of the heirs of the previous king killed so that they make sure that there's no threat to his reign. Let's, let's just be done with that dynasty. Let's have them all killed. And Mephibosheth probably figured, oh boy, the king wants to see me. That must not be a good thing. So he calls him into the throne and when he gets there in Second Samuel... Chapter 9, in verse 7, and of course Mephibosheth is scared to death. And David said to him, Do not fear. I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. I'll restore you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Hallelujah. You know what that's a picture of? It's a picture of lame sinners in sin and rebellion like you and I. Cowering in fear, wondering if we're going to get retribution and judgment from the God of this universe which we deserve and yet we find that rather than God leveling out his judgment against people who really deserve it like you and I we find favor through his son Jesus and we get to sit at his table forever and so King Saul King David here is a picture of God God set the table and so this table when you come into the table and you see the table there it's a picture of fellowship it is a picture of communion if we had a Lord's table in, a, in many churches, and many of you have probably been raised in a church that was like this, and have a table sitting in front of the podium, and it usually had inscribed on it in the wood, this do in remembrance of me. And we call that the Lord's table. And normally we would set the table up, just like we're setting it up over here. And it will be a permanent fixture inside the church. And that's the place that signifies communion with God, a relationship with God, where you talk to Him, and He talks to you, made possible through His precious Son. And so that's what the symbol is of this table, is that God is the greatest host of all. He's the greatest practitioner of hospitality. And He longs for a wonderful, glorious invitation of the gospel for His saints, not only to come in through the bronze altar, but to go in to the inner place and enter into fellowship with Him. You see, when you go by the labor, if you confess, confess means to say the same thing about something that God says. That's all it means. It means that I own up to the fact that, yeah, that was sin. God pointed it out in my life. He convicted me. I agree with Him. It's agreement to say, Lord, you know what? That was sin. I'm not going to try to defend it. I'm not going to blame it on Chad. I'm not going to blame it on my third grade teacher. I'm not going to blame it on 
you know, a bully in the neighborhood and is going to blame it on me. I'm going to accept full responsibility for the fact that I've sinned against you. I'm confessing and I'm in agreement with you and I'm going to ask you to forgive me. And the Bible says it's just for him to forgive us because the penalty has already been taken out on his son. And the Bible says he's faithful to do it because the penalty has already been taken out on his son. Hallelujah to his name. So then when we move on in and we go into the show showbread, the, 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 the table of the presence of God, after having gone to the altar, having, having washed at the labor, if we want to move on in, we find loaves there. You remember one time that we said, we used an acrostic, and we said, you know what, halt. Be careful that you don't get too hungry, too angry, too lonely, or too tired. If you're any one of those, halt. Because you're on the verge of trouble. Don't ever get too hungry. Don't ever get too angry. Don't ever get too lonely. Don't ever get too tired. Are you hungry? You see, let me ask you, let me just say this to you. We talked about being a courtyard believer. You know that there are many believers who are just lingering around in the courtyard and won't move into the place of fellowship because we love our sin and rebellion more than we love any prospect of communion with God. Let's admit it. Lord, I've nursed this unforgiveness in my heart. And I like this unforgiveness more than I like communion with you at a deeper level. Let's be honest. Let's just have integrity and admit it. Lord, I've got bitterness in my heart. And I, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm justified in it. And you make a case and you build a case. That, yeah, I can hold on to this because of. And then you justify the bitterness. And what you're really saying is, Lord, if I can just linger around here in the courtyard, I really don't care about going in there. And I want you to know something. There's not one single piece of bread in the courtyard. Not one. And I want to tell you something right now. We've got a host of hungry believers that are wandering around the courtyard because we like our sin and we like our rebellion and we nurse our pride more than we love fellowship with the Lord of Lords. Boy, that is a pathetic cost to pay, pay, pay. That's an unwise choice. And that's a kind way to say it. It's a foolish choice. It's a foolish choice. Lord, I like my rebellion. I'm calling my shots. You told me to do this, but I'm going to do that. And all that ensures is just some more walking around and meandering around in the courtyard. And there's no bread there in the courtyard. And you'll starve slap to death in the courtyard. Where's the bread to be found? The bread to be found in the holy place. And when you move in, there it is. And the loaves, there are plenty of bread inside the holy place. It's a place of fellowship. It's the Lord's table. You have an invitation. You and I have a carte blanche invitation. Carte blanche invitation through Jesus and the blood that was shed on the cross to enter that place. That, does not, that is not the picture of heaven, even though it's according to the pattern of what heaven looks like. And we'll talk more about that in another message. But it's a picture of having heaven down here. It's a picture of the victorious Christian life. It's a picture of moving in. What did Jesus say about bread? Jesus said in John 6, 48, I am the bread of life. Jesus said that uh, in that same chapter, in chapter John, I mean chapter 6 of John, He referred to Himself as being the bread of life seven times. He said, if you eat of this bread, I'm going to tell you right now, you, you'll, be, you'll be satisfied. You'll have everlasting life. And we know that bread, it talks about His body. Broken before, for you and I. For you and I. When you look in your Bibles, and when it says showbread, it says showbread, it might, it, it might, uh, it might say S-H-E-W bread, 
or it might say S-H-O-W in the more modern translations. That means the bread of faces. Isn't that curious? The word showbread means the bread of faces. F-A-C-E-S. What he's saying by that is that when you grab this bread and you take of this bread, my face is ever before you. We talked about it before, but you can't look at two people at the same time. You ever notice that? If I'm looking at Ken, it's the exclusion of looking at everybody else. If I look away from Ken, I'm going to look at somebody else, but I can't look at you at the same time and look at somebody else at the same time. This is the way we try to live the Christian life. We'll look at the world and look at Jesus at the same time. We've got to pick a team. It's got to be one or the other. And if we keep our eyes fixed on Him, it means we're going to have to get our eyes off of something else. And He said, you know what? Fellowship with me. What about the song? I love this hymn. You remember it? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And what happens? The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Somebody had a word from God when they wrote that. And He said, you know what? My face is seen in these loaves. I'm seen here. Now there are 12 loaves they put in there. Something curious about those 12 loaves. They were to always be there. Every time a loaf was eaten, they had two lines, two rows. Six in one and six in the other. The loaves were identical. And the loaves are symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel. The ladies talked about this yesterday, but it's a biblical fact. It's pretty amazing too. The only miracle in the Bible that Jesus performed that occurs in all four Gospels is the feeding of the 5,000. There's some miracles that are include twice in the Scriptures. Maybe Matthew, Mark. Maybe Mark and Luke will record it. Maybe just John. Maybe just Matthew. There's some of them that are in three of the four Gospels. There's only one that's in all four, and that's the feeding of the 5,000. You know why? Because Jesus Christ is enough. He said, you know what? If you come in here and feed here, you won't get hungry again. I made provision. And before you can receive that I'm enough, you've got to receive me like this. The book of Matthew says, the theme of Matthew is, He's the Messiah. He's the King of the Jews. The book of Mark says he's the suffering servant. The book of Luke says he's the Son of Man, the the Savior of the Gentiles. And the book of John says he's God. And in order to confer with him and commune with him and have fellowship with him, you've got to believe that all four of those things are true about him. And once we enter into the truth that that is who he is, God, I don't get a vote on what you're like. Reveal to me what you're like through the Word. And whatever you show me, Excuse me, I receive. And once we receive all the dynamics of what His character and witness and identity is like, you get to see His face. He is enough. He is enough. Now look at the at the layout of the of the uh, of the showbread table. Do you remember that the altar, the brazen altar, was made of two things? Do you remember what they were? Does anybody remember? Bronze. The brazen bronze. But that was bronze overlaid with acacia wood. Now we talked about the fact that that's symbolic. Do you remember what we talked about the, what's symbolic of bronze in the Scripture? Hmm? And what does that symbolize? That's right. We see that in his feet. What does that symbolize? You remember what we talked about throughout the scripture? What bronze symbolizes? Judgment. 
symbolizes judgment. And so the wood part of the altar symbolized his humanity. That God judged Jesus on the cross and put his sin, my sin, on top of him. He didn't have any. Mine of your sin on him and judged him as if he committed what you and I did. And that judgment and the brass, they came together to show that his humanity was judged. That Jesus, the infinite God-man, God who became a man, his humanity was judged because his sin was placed, my sin and your sin was placed on top of him. But now we come to the table of showbread and it's made of gold. It's made of gold, pure gold and acacia wood. Now, you know what that symbolizes? Symbolizes the fact that Jesus is God and man. Gold symbolizes his deity. The wood symbolizes he did become a man. He took on human flesh. Now, when you go in there, there is no judgment in that place. Do you remember we talked about before? That when it's all said and done and you and I enter into eternity, it's all judgment for the unrepentant, but it's all mercy for those who repented and put their faith in Jesus. You take a pick. Which one you want? There's no judgment inside there because the judgment's already been leveled at the bronze altar. That's where judgment took place. Now, by the time you go to the altar, the way of the cross leads home. Hallelujah. It's sweet to know as I onward go that the way of the cross leads home. And then we go by the labor, not to be redeemed, but because we are redeemed and we wash there. And then we dare go into the most, to the holy place. And there is no judgment. There is no brass there. It's all gold because judgment is over. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Man, we're to celebrate that. So the wood shows his humanity, the gold shows his deity. Now, the scriptures say that no one but the priest could touch the table and the bread. Only the priest could go in there. If anybody went in there, anybody else went in there and touched that bread, it was trouble. Only the priest could go inside. How many different religions, my goodness alive, and you could think of some prominently in your mind right now that that advance this idea that there's some mediator other than Christ, between you and God. The Bible knows of no such teaching whatsoever. The Bible says there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Period. We don't call any man on earth Father. We call Him Father. He's our heavenly Father. And we're His children through Jesus Christ. Amen? You have direct access to God and the reason that you and I can go in there in fellowship is because you are a priest. Hallelujah! We have the priesthood of the believer. Let's look at 1 Peter 2.9. Take a trip over there with me. This is just one spot, but let's look at it. In 1 Peter 2.9. Look what God did through the redemption of His Son and the plan that He perfectly executed through Him through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at 1 Peter 2.9. Look at what you're called, believer. Can I say this to you? I'm, often, I'm guarded and careful about this. But you know, as a pastor, and I know that Pastor Dave can share this sentiment, but as a pastor, I tell people all the time, and I do pray for them all the time, and I pray for you by name. And I know Pastor Dave does the same thing. But I'm always guarded and careful to say this. I really always want to get this out somehow or another. I'll say this. 
like Pat. Call it Pat the other day. I said, Pat, give us an update on Mr. Uh, your dad. Well, hallelujah. You know, and he gave us praise. Hallelujah. We're so grateful for that. I said, Pat, is there anything that we can do for you and your family besides pray for you, which is no small thing? Always got to put that qualifier in there. Because, you know, we'll say that. Uh, you know, well, I'll pray for you. Like that's a real low choice. You know, there are several other things I could be doing, but I guess we'll default to the lowest common denominator and say we're going to pray for you. It's the best thing I can do for you. But also, when I'm praying in agreement with somebody, let's say that somebody comes up. Ken came up the other day and said, i got an unspoken request I want you to pray about. Yes, we will. We'll intercede together. Let me say this to you. Let me qualify this to you and tell you. I'll pray for you as your pastor, but I want you to know something. My prayers are not one iota better than yours. Not one. God, I don't have any favor with God that you don't have in praying with you. Are we supposed to pray with one another? Am I supposed to pray for you? And is Pastor Dave supposed to pray with you as your pastors? Absolutely. Do we do it? Absolutely. Are our prayers better than yours? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. You have direct access to God through Jesus Christ if you're a believer. Amen. Isn't that wonderful? Praise His holy name. Look what it says here. It says you're a chosen generation. You are a royal what? priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. The Bible says that we have the boldness to go in to the throne of grace to find mercy and grace and help in time of need. That is not for some big shot spiritual hierarchy. It is for every believer purchased by the blood of the Lamb. Praise His holy name. The priest can go in and touch that bread and we can eat from that bread. Bless the name of our great God. Now I want you to look at the linings of the table. Exodus 25, 24 and 25. Let's go look at it. Exodus 25. And we're going to look at uh, verses 24 and 25. It says that you shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding, a molding, remember that word, a molding of gold all around. You shall make for it a frame of a hand breath all around and you shall make a gold molding. Look at that word molding. For the frame all around. Does anybody in here have a King James Version of the Bible? Is anybody reading from King James here? Are you looking? What is that word used? I, I, I called to my memory when it says, thank you buddy. You see in verse 24 when it says, and you shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding. What does that say? Does it say crown? How about, can you, can you read it for me? Are you going to be mad at me if I ask you to read that? Okay. Okay, it says a crown of gold. Now you can mark it in your Bible and put that there beside molding in verses 24 and 25, and you could put crown, a crown of gold. There is a, there's crown molding, Ray, in the, in the showbread table. Okay? There is a rim of molding around it. It's like crown molding. But it has a rim that extends out. And the reason that rim extends out, and it has two of them, Chad. It has one up top and one down below it. And it's, it's separated by a hand breath, which means the measure of a hand. In other words, you take your hand and you put it in there, artists. 
put the crown molding here with the rim all around it. Put your hand in between that rim right there and then put another layer of crown just like it. Okay, the reason that's put there is this. The reason that was put there is is because the bread was supposed to stay in there all the time. There was never a time (coughs) when that thing was not stocked with bread. Never. God gave specific instructions, right? Keep the bread in there. Keep the bread in there. You know what we can learn from that? Fellowship with our Lord is always available. Hallelujah to His name. He said, keep it in there. He said, also, not only am I going to keep it in there, but we're going to put a rim around it to make sure that the bread can't fall out. We're going to protect it. When you move this thing around, and we go from here to there, and wherever else I tell you to move it, We've got to make sure that none of this bread falls to the ground. Because if it falls to the ground, first of all, there's got to be 12 loaves in there because that's complete. That's my completed work on the cross to reach and redeem all the 12 tribes of Israel and work through them to be a light to the Gentiles. The 12 disciples. It's complete. And he said, listen, listen, the crown's got to be in there. And you know what the Bible says in Hebrews 2.7? That Jesus has a crown. The Bible says He's crowned with glory and He's crowned with honor. There are two crowns in that table because there are two crowns on His head. Glory and honor. Those crowns represent Jesus. And the crowns are put there to keep from the bread from falling out. You know why? Because as your saint right here, you are preserved forever. It's a picture of eternal security. It means the saint is eternally secure. Fellowship is fixed. Nobody can do anything about it. Hallelujah. We're secure in Christ. You might want to write this down if you're taking notes. For the bread to fall off the table would mean that it would have to be decrowned. Which means that for you to lose your salvation, for you, saint, To lose your salvation means that Jesus would have to lose His crown. Amen, Brother Lewis. I'm excited about that. I'm telling you right now, my best 15 minutes of living are not acceptable for a holy God. If you could lose your salvation, I've been saved enough now already, I would have done it. But hallelujah, it's secure in Him. You know what? The day you can lose your salvation is the day that Jesus loses His crown. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Praise His name! Amen? I do get excited about stuff like that. I'm so grateful for that, I can't hardly stand it. He said, listen, we'll put the crown there to keep the bread from being coming off. Look at Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. Romans 8, 38 and 39. You're familiar with this. There are three things that that molding, the crown molding. Guys, Ray, next time you're called upon to go into a house and put crown molding in there, think about this table. That crown molding right there secures my salvation. My Jesus is crowned. He's King of kings. He's Lord of lords. He possessed a crown before the foundation of the earth. He's wearing one now, and He always will wear one. And as long as He's crowned, I'm secure. Hallelujah. Josh, is that good news? Amen. He, we're secure in Him. Look what? The first thing that molding does is it keeps it from being the bread from being separated from the table. Look at, look at Romans chapter 8, 38 and 39. Ooh, 
hallelujah, look at this, for I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's good news, amen? It keeps us from being separated. It keeps us from falling. Look at Jude. Look at Jude. Chapter 3. Somebody's going to figure this out in a minute. <laughs> only got one chapter. I'll just cut that with you. All right, Jude, Jude, and only Jude, look at Jude, and we're going to look at verses 24 and 25. According to your version of the Bible, it might say falling here. It says stumbling in mind. Look at this. Now to him, now to him, now to him, that's capital, that's a capital H, who is able to keep you from stumbling or falling and to present you faultless for the, for the presence of His glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. So it keeps you from being separated, it keeps you from falling, and it's a preservative. The crown is a preservative. Let me tell you this. He put that bread in there, and I don't know how God preserved it, but He did. It's secure within. And look what Jude chapter 1 says. It says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God, by God the Father, and what? Preserved in Jesus. And I tell you this. If you're looking for yourself to preserve you, you're in trouble. But we've got a preservative. That's the King of kings and the Ancient of days. He's the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. Psalm 37, verse 28. Turn left, way left, and go over to Psalm 37. That's one of my favorite Psalms. 37. Do you hear it, saint? If you're a saint... If you've repented toward God and put your faith in Jesus Christ, your fellowship with the Father through the Son is secure forever. You might not be enjoying it right now, but it's secured forever. It is secured forever. Hallelujah. Look what, look what Psalm 37 verse um, 28 says. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake His saints. They are preserved Forever. They are preserved forever. Hallelujah. 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 So the crowns, we've looked at. We've looked at the layer, the crown, layer of crown molding. Now we look at the coverings. In Numbers 4, verses 7 through 8, it says there were three coverings on it. The first covering on it, when they moved it, was blue. That represents heaven. Jesus is manna. He's bread from where? Heaven. Okay? How do you think? that they made these loaves. You know where they got the material to make the loaves from? They got the material to make the loaves from the manna that fell down. And they would gather up the manna. You know what? You could either use the manna for substance or you can trample under your foot the manna, one or the other. People are doing that to Jesus every single day. Hebrews chapter 10 says this, Of how much worse punishment are you think those who deserve, who have trampled underfoot Jesus Christ, insulted the Spirit of grace, and considered His blood a common thing? So when you go out and gather the manna up, and if you take hold of it and you appropriate it to your life, 
By faith, you become one of God's own. And they took that man and they used that to make the showbread. And that was sustained them. And that was what you got to enjoy. When you got and sat at God's table, you got manna from heaven. Came straight from heaven. The bread from heaven. That's what the blue symbolizes. Jesus is the written Word, but He's also the living Word. The body of Jesus Christ. You know what? And we've talked about this time and again before, but sometimes there's a saying that floats around. You know how you can sayings can float around in Christian circles and they be non-scriptural. And here's one. Some people are so heavenly minded to their no earthly good. The Bible teaches you no earthly good until you're heavenly minded. And we, and you know, this bread came from heaven. Our substance is from heaven. And then the scarlet was the next one. It's like the crushing of a worm is what that means. Tom, Psalm 22.6, Jesus said, I am like a worm. It's a first person account of the cross. It was the caucus worm. It was a worm that was full of blood. And they would take that worm and crush that worm and out would come the crimson blood of, from the worm and they would use that to make the dye of the scarlet that was needed to make the curtains and the scarlet that was needed to uh, make the curtains throughout the tabernacle. We just sang this. The hymn writer had it right. Al, do you know? Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would He devote that sacred head for such... You know how it was originally written? Such a worm as I. He's talking about the caucus worm. That guy got it right, the hymn writer. They changed it to sinner now, same thing. But the caucus worm is what they would crush. Jesus said, I'm like a worm on this cross. And the weight of your judgment, Lord, is crushing me in the wine press for your glory to redeem the likes of Chad Israel. Hallelujah to His name, He must love us. And so, Lord, that scarlet cross, that scarlet cloth is, cloth is a picture of His blood. Then the badger skins are on the outside and it speaks of the humiliation of Jesus Christ. The badger skins covered the entire tabernacle and also covered this, picture, this article when it, was, uh, when it was moved. And then the last one, and we'll go into the Lord's Supper. We've looked at several different aspects of the showbread table. We've looked at the living message. We've looked at the loaves. We've looked at the linings. We've looked at the layers. And now we're going to look at the location. Look at where it's located. Would you turn with me to John 15, 26? John 15, 26. Now we've talked about this before in times past. But everything in here, every little piece, every little detail, every little carving, every little position, every little jot and tittle everything about this tabernacle was put together for a reason there's nothing in there that's arbitrary there's nothing in there for god just to put, do it for the fun of it it's all symbolism we only know just a little bit a little bit of the symbolism but let me tell you another piece of the symbolism as you walk into the most holy place or the holy place you'll notice on the screen behind me as you look in and we're walking in together and let's say we're walking in on the right hand side is the table of God's presence. On the left-hand side is what we're going to look at, God willing, next, would be the golden lampstand. Do you see it? Alright. The, the holy place is lit and illuminated by the golden lampstand. That's the only light that's in there. Now we think of that in terms of the menorah. And you've seen that before. Jewish... Um, that, are, that uh, they use in the Jewish religion. It came from here. 
And we think of that as terms of candles sitting on that lampstand. Those are not candles. It's oil. You put oil inside there and it's the oil that's burning. Now, in the scriptures, oil is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. That's the only piece of the furniture that points to the Holy Spirit. And that's it right there. And look how it's conveniently and strategically placed right across from where the showbread table is. Now here's why. Won't you listen to this? Here's why it's strategically placed there. Look at John 15 verse 26. It says, For when the Helper... Now the Helper is capitalized there because that's speaking of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit or Helper comes whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, what will, he be, what will his ministry be? He will testify of me. Now, the reason the lampstand is right across the street from the showbread table where Jesus shows his face is it is because of the work and ministry and illuminating power of the Holy Spirit that the Son is seen. That's why the scriptures say that there's only one sin that won't be forgiven. What's the one sin that cannot be forgiven? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Jesus even said in that same passage, blasphemy against me. If you blaspheme me, I'll forgive you for that. But if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, there's no hope for you. You know why? It is because it is through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that the Son is known. You can't know Him unless you're drawn by the Holy Spirit. Unless the Holy Spirit... Do you understand? Can I, can I really emphasize this right now? And maybe this, will be the, maybe this will be the launching pad for us to go into the Lord's Supper maybe with more gratitude than we've ever, we've ever had before. Could it be this morning? Is it possible? Do we dare trust and ask God to let us go into the communion table this morning and have more gratitude for that table than we've ever had before? And let me tell you this. Let me tell you something that might push us there. Not, not from me, but from God's Word. There's not one single thing you know and believe about Jesus Christ that was not given to you. It is supernatural to believe. It is supernatural to believe. When we were at our previous church, I had a friend, a dear friend, and his father had rejected the Gospel for 80-something years. I'm talking about vehemently rejected it. I'm talking about militantly rejected. I'm talking about don't mention it to me. Because if you do, I'm liable to throw you out of my house. That's what his dad was like. He called me up one day and he said, Brother Lindsay, he said, I think there's been a breakthrough in my dad's heart. I said, well, hallelujah. He said, listen, he's been reading the Left Behind series and he's starting to ask questions. And they're kind of questions I've never heard him ask before. He said, would you go with me now, he didn't need me, but he asked me if I would go with him. Would you go with me and let's go talk with him? I said, absolutely. So we went and made our way over to where he lives. It's way over on the other side of Six Flags, which isn't all that far, is it? Uh, and so he um, gave me some idea how far the nobles come, doesn't it? But we went over to uh, Six Flags. I sympathize and feel your pain. We went over there, sat down, and for four hours talked about the gospel. Went every direction I knew, I knew to go. Got out of the Bible. We did everything. You know what he did at the end of this? I've never had anybody do this to me before. He looked at me and there was pain in his face. And he said, I want you to know something. I wish that I could believe like you guys. So you can't come to the God anytime you get ready to. 
the Holy Spirit draws you. And that scared me to death. Let me tell you why. Because there comes a time when God stops drawing. There comes a time when the windows of heaven close. There comes a time when He doesn't strive with man forever. You just can't make up your mind to believe. The reason that you believe this morning is it's a gift. God gave you the faith to believe. He granted you repentance. And when we gather together at this table to celebrate what was a preview of coming attractions at that table, we have no one to thank. We have no one to glorify except Jesus. And it has nothing to do with us. Not one single thing. So when the priest went in there, when you and I go in there, everything I see and know about him, how clear his face is to me. You remember the bread was the bread? It's the bread of faces, Hannah. It's the bread of faces. When you pick up that bread, you can see his body, his face. And how clearly I see it has everything to do with how well positioned that lamp is. And that lamp is perfectly positioned by a holy God and it's illuminated, that's the Holy Spirit illuminating me so I get to see Jesus in my life, my witness, my circumstances, in my hurt, my pain, my victory, and my confusion, and my doubt, and my fear. Enter in. Enter in. Enter in. The Holy Spirit will turn on the light and you get to see Him. Hallelujah.